All right. John 15. I'm, I'm just going to be actually um, expositing, preaching from um, verses 7 through 11. But just to keep the text in its context, we're going to start in uh, verse number 1. And we will um, look at that whole section. So this was the section that Pastor Brian exposited to us, preached to us, um, whatever, two weeks ago. Last week was Easter. And here we are, all right? Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you've not left us on our own, but you've given to us your sweet spirit. Through our faith in you, we have the present ministry of the Holy Spirit that ministers your word to us. And Jesus, you know full well, there are some branches in this room that need your life-giving sap. Feed us in this time. Feed us from your word. May we drink deeply from it for your glory. May you be glorified by us bearing fruit, by us being attached to you, by your life and sustenance flowing through us. In your name we pray, amen. You could be seated. Here's the uh, big idea. So this is what we're, we'll be looking at. If you want to take notes, you can jot this down. Um, it's pretty simple, but here it is. The big idea is this, that true disciples of Jesus, we have a permanent, life-giving, fruit-bearing, joy-producing union with Jesus. That's the Christian life. Like we're just going to circle around and around and around that central truth. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is this, that we through Jesus, through our faith in Christ, our union with Christ, you and I can have a permanent, life-giving, fruit-bearing, joy-producing life because of Jesus. 
I believe that um, John chapter 15 is one of the most beautiful passages, one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. It's one of the great chapters of the book of the Bible. If you think about just some, some key, I know all of God's word is beautiful. All of God's word is wonderful, right? All of God's word, as we learned in seminary, is inspired, but not all of it is all that inspiring at times. Like read the book of Leviticus, right? But there are certain chapters of God's word that he gives to us. Like if you could think about this, I heard R.C. Sproul say this one time, like if you were on a deserted island, an island and you could choose one book, certainly you would choose the Bible, right? But if you could only choose like one book within the Bible, what would you choose? And then if you could only choose one chapter within a, the whole of the Bible, what chapter would you choose? And then if you could only choose one verse to have with you, what verse would that be? Certainly in the list of chapters that you may choose, this may be one of the chapters, John the 15th chapter. Another one would be Isaiah 53, maybe Philippians 2, maybe Romans 8, maybe Ephesians 2, maybe Psalms 119, I don't know. But this is certainly a beautiful passage of scripture. And we can also say this about this chapter. I know of no other chapter in its entirety that is both filled with such, such beauty and such encouragement and such strong warning that in this chapter you have, even in the 11 verses we've read, you have mingled into that. You have such beautiful encouragement, such tenderness and care in this. And then you have also such toughness and such strong, hard words for us to come upon, some warning in that. I mean, even as you think about the analogy Jesus gives, isn't it a beautiful analogy? God is the vine dresser. We are part of this, the God's vineyard. Jesus is the primary vine. You and I, we are his branches. All of humanity is branches and some are bearing fruit and some are not bearing fruit. It also says to us that our job isn't just on our own efforts and by our own strength. We're not just to produce fruit and make fruit pop out, but how does fruit comes? Fruit comes as we abide in the vine flowing through us is Jesus' sap, Jesus' life, Jesus' nourishment, Jesus' sustenance is flowing through you. And as it flows through you, you pop out fruit, you produce fruit. Now, as Pastor Brian says, the fruit that it's speaking about are the characteristics and character of Christ. It's about a transformed you. It's not just about you now doing good works, although good works is implied in that, but it's about who you are more than what you do. It's the fruit of the spirit from Galatians chapter five verses, I think 22 and maybe through 24, somewhere around that neighborhood right there. But what a beautiful analogy it is. Jesus is saying in his vineyard, there are two types of branches, those that bear fruit, and how does he treat those? Those that bear fruit, Jesus lovingly, the vine dresser, I guess the father lovingly picks up those branches and places them on the trellis and he prunes them, he even says. That's the word of warning. He prunes them, he cuts them back. Why? What's his purpose in that? His purpose in that is so that you may bear more fruit. What that means for you is your suffering is not in vain. It means your suffering has purpose to it, that the Father is interceding in your suffering and in life's difficulties. And what is he doing? He's cutting you back. And what is his purpose in that? So that you can bear more fruit, so that your character and your life will be more congruent to the life and the character of Jesus. That's good news, even in the midst of some tough words, right? 
If you've ever seen a tree or a plant that got cut back and you look at it, you go like, will it ever live again, right? At the end of the fall, you take foliage, you know, like we have hostess plants given to us by our neighbors and other kinds of plants in our front landscaping and they, they get brown and we go in and we cut them back. And I look at them every winter, I go, there's no way they're gonna live again. And then what happens? They produce life again. And the father is saying, Jesus is saying, that's what happens in your life. He prunes you, he cuts you back. And what is his purpose in that? So that you can bear more fruit. So you can be more like Jesus. So you'll look like Jesus, not physically, thankfully, right? Some of you ladies will look awful funny with a beard. You might fit in better at the Point Community Church, but nevertheless, you would look funny with beards. Not that you may look like that, but so the inner characteristics, the inner qualities, your nature would be divine, like Jesus's nature. That is what he's saying. So the first type of branch are the branches that bear fruit and he cuts them back. So they're gonna bear more fruit. But then there's another type of branch. It's the branches that bear no fruit. The branches that are dead and withered up on the inside. And he says, they get cut off. Not cut back, but they get cut off. They're not receiving sap from the vine and they get cut off. They are removed and they are burned, which as Pastor Brian mentioned in his sermon, that is ultimately a picture of hell. It's ultimately saying that there are only two types of people, those who are Christians receiving life from Jesus and those who are not unbelievers. There's only two destinations, heaven and hell. Now, what we have here in this text is we have one foundational command, just one. The command is not to bear fruit. The command is not to obey. The command is not to love God. One foundational command, and it is to abide, to abide in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying over and over again, certainly you've seen it. Abide, 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 abide in me. Abide in my love, abide in my command. Abide, abide, abide. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means this, it means to remain in Jesus, to stay connected to Jesus, to stay attached to the vine, receive life and sustenance from Jesus. Stay there, abide there. The word abide is not an, it's not, it's an ordinary word. It's not a theological or a spiritual word. The word used here that Jesus used, it's the word in the, in the Greek, it's the word minnow. Don't say it. You know what a minnow is, right? Don't say it. It's a little fish. No, keep going. It's the word minnow. It's used some 100 times in the New Testament. It is this, it's a verb. It means to stay, to stay in a given place, to stay in a state, to stay in a relationship. It means to continue, to dwell, to endure, to be present, to remain, to stand, and to tarry. So it's used 120 times in the Bible. There are some nine different words, English words we use, all meaning, all saying the same thing, the word minnow. And it means to stay in Jesus, to remain in Jesus. That's what he's getting at. That as you do this, Jesus abides in you and you will produce fruit. See, they just had an illustration of this. They've had an illustration of the opposite, I should say, of this. They remember in the room, there's now 11 
disciples who will be the apostles. The original 11 are in this room together with Jesus, but there used to be 12. But guess what happened? One of them didn't remain. One of them named Judas. Jesus outed Judas. Judas, you'll be the one who betray us. Judas gets up and, Jesus, and Judas physically leaves the room and goes out. And as Jesus is saying these very words, Judas is conspiring with the religious leaders on to have Jesus to be tried, beaten, arrested, ultimately crucified. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't do what Judas did. Stay, stay. Stay here, stay connected, stay attached. That's what he's getting at because ultimately this is the very essence of Christianity. The Christianity in its essence is not you walking an aisle and shaking a pastor's hand and professing a faith and then getting baptized. What Jesus is saying here is not everybody that goes to church is the church. What Jesus is saying here is, as I've done my work, as I've sown out seed, that some of the seed has fallen onto fertile soil and produced fruit, but some's gonna fall on a rocky path and produce no fruit. Some is gonna uh, fall and the thorns and the thistles, the cares of this world is gonna choke it out. Some is gonna fall and the birds, the fowls of the air, Satan is gonna come and steal it. What Jesus is saying is there's tares that grow up among the wheat. That's what he's saying. And what he's asking is, are you, these 11, stay and remain and prove to be, show to be my disciples. That this is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is that you and I are in this relationship with Jesus. That we have a permanent, life-giving, joy-filled, fruit-bearing union with Christ. It means that for you and I, when we claim the name of Christ, when we say, count me among Jesus's group, count me among Jesus's family. When we're saying that, when we're professing that, we are also saying not just that we profess faith, but that we possess faith, that we have faith. What do we have faith in? Well, namely, we have faith in Christ. We have through our faith in Christ, a belief in Christ, and we're united to Christ. We're connected to Jesus. And through this connection, the Holy Spirit of God now abides and lives inside of us. The Spirit of Jesus takes up residence in us and abides in every believer. That's what it means to be a Christian. But you, by your faith, are connected to the vine. You're connected to Jesus. And Jesus' Spirit is in you. When you say that you're a Christian, it means this. It means that you are a new creation. All the old things have gone away and behold, all things are new. Just like you look at your plant, it gets cut back and there's new life sprouting from it. The same thing has occurred to you. You are a new creation. We are the partakers of a divine nature. That's what he means by that. It means that presently we possess the very life of God, the mind of Christ, the salvation of Christ. It means that we bear the fruit for the spirit. It means we bear the fruit of the Spirit. That Jesus' character is being formed in us. That Jesus' righteous life is being produced in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Peter uses this list. He says it's faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And what Peter says, if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, how are they increasing? You get pruned. If these qualities are yours and they're increasing in your life, then they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 1a. 
What does it mean to be a Christian? What means that Jesus's word, the Bible has come alive to you. It's alive in you. It's powerful in you. It's sharp and it's active and it's powerful and it's working its way in you. But God's word is your hope and your strength. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly in God's word if you are his. If you're attached to the vine, then God's word is dwelling in you richly. And God's word, Jesus's word, it's giving shape and direction to your life. You're being transformed by God's spirit, utilizing his word. His word is shaping you and changing you, molding you, chiseling you, changing you. It means that through your faith in Christ, you are the adopted children of God. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer an orphan. You're no longer out on your own, but you are the adopted child of God. You are dearly loved by the Father. You've come under a deluge of God's love, Romans 5, 5. And you abide in his love. You're cognizant of the Father's affection, which incites your love toward him and toward others that we love because God first loved us. It means that obedience to the Savior and our Lord is of paramount importance to us. That while we were far from perfection, while we are far from perfection, we have a new direction in our lives, namely the holiness of God. We strive to live holy lives. It's lives set apart for God and by God's power. We live for the glory of God and not our own. We desire to please him and not man, not ourselves. We strive to please him with our thoughts, our action, the totality of our lives. And none of this is from us or for us. But all of this that I just described is for him and from him. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and power forever and ever and ever. That is what it means to be a Christian. This isn't something you can do on your own. This is something that has to come from him. This comes as you abide in him and you persevere and you keep abiding and you keep staying. Let's look at the text. Just four verses that we're gonna look at today. Here's what we find in these four verses. There's one central truth in these verses and it's built upon, it's surrounded by two conditional statements and then at least three benefits to abiding. So the one central statement in this text is verse number eight. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Like we say the proof's in the pudding, right? We could say, hey, did you put sugar in the dessert? And then you stick the spoon in and nope. Right, the first, one of the first times I ever tried to cook, I made some cookies. I wanted to bake some cookies for my family. And so I found a recipe in a cookbook. Those were books, there's these things. Not the internet because it had yet to be invented. But nevertheless, I found a cookbook and I got this recipe and then I was following it, but it came down to salt, which I thought was odd. What I thought was even more odd was that it called for a half a cup of salt. Because it didn't. It called for a half a teaspoon of salt, but I put a half a cup of salt in these cookies. Yes, they were utterly disgusting. The proof was when we ate the cookies. You ask your child, did you put oil in your car? Yes, I put oil in your car. When the motor seizes up, the proof that they didn't put oil in the car shows up. Anybody can say anything. The proof is in the outcome. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Are you my disciples? Yes, we are your disciples. Okay, my father will be glorified by you. 
If you are my disciples, then you're gonna bear fruit. Your life is gonna be transformed. You're gonna live different than the world. You're gonna live for him and for his glory. That's what he's getting at. You'll be attached to the vine, united to him. You're gonna bear fruit. It's surrounded by, built upon two conditional statements. That's the if you statements. If you, I always kind of hate to talk about if you statements, but they're here in the word. Again, this is what give, gives proof, gives evidence of our salvation. They were continuing in discipleship. What are those? Well, verse number seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Verse number 10, if you keep my commandments. Those are the conditional statements. And then there are three, at least three benefits to abiding in the text. First one, it will be answered prayer which is where he says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The next one is you will be secure in God's love for you. You will abide in my love, he says. And the last one is the gold and you will have, you will experience fullness of joy. Verse 11, these things, that's the totality of everything I'm getting at. What's the greatest, what's the, a great benefit of abiding in Jesus What's the, what's the benefit of it is these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and then your joy because of that will be full. Sounds good, right? Who, doesn't, who, who, who wants to sign up for that one? Give me some joy. Give me joy, Jesus. All right. I think we can hit the whole text by just focusing in on these three benefits. So for the next few minutes, let's just, we'll take them one at a time. Answer prayer, secure in the Father's love and fullness of joy. And I think we'll, have sufficiently exposited this text. Certainly, we could preach from John 15 for a month. We'll take a vote at the end and see if you all want us to do that. But here we go. Number one, answered prayer. Verse number seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Let's think about prayer for a minute. When we pray, you and I, there's uh, basically three parts to prayer. And I'm talking more about private prayer rather than corporate prayer, but there's three main parts to prayer. Part number one would be to whom we are praying to, the recipient, the object of our prayer. Part number two would be the prayer, the person praying. Part number three would be the prayer. Now, what I want you to do in your own mind, I want you to um, prioritize those. What's of the greatest to less to least uh, um, priority or importance, maybe I should say? the object of our prayer, the person praying, the prayer itself. What's most important to least important in that? Well, certainly I think we would say what's most important is the object of our prayer, who we're praying to. That's super important. And this is why, because God has power and nothing else does. God has all power, all sovereignty, all, everything is in his hand, in his midst, and nothing else has any power to it. Now, I don't think anybody's done this in quite a while, so I'm not picking on anybody, but in this age of social media, it's an easy target for preachers to find you saying dumb stuff and then we get to preach about it. So thank you for that. So some of you have contributed to this, but we say in our social media age, when we have a prayer need, oftentimes on social, what we will say is, hey, what I'm needing right now is some positive thoughts, some good vibes and some prayers. Can we just say that positive thoughts and good vibes are in one category and prayer is in a completely different category. Like 
I can do nothing to help you, to affect your life, to bless you, to make something happen in your life by just sending you, I don't even know how good vibes are. <laughs> Whatever that means. It mean, Cause you know what it means? It means nothing. It has a zero power. And when we say that in a social media, I think it's dishonoring to the Lord. Cause you're putting positive thoughts on the same level as praying to the thrice holy, sovereign, almighty. Two completely different things, right? But we say that. So let's just don't say that anymore. In fact, what we should say is to my Bible-believing, God-fearing people that will pray to a sovereign and good, almighty, thrice holy God, will you join me in prayer about this one thing? In fact, it makes me think about one of my favorite chapters and stories in all the Bible is in 1 Kings. I think the 15th chapter is the story of... of uh, Elijah, the prophet of God, challenging the prophets of Baal. And so what Elijah does is the prophet of God, and up until this point, Elijah is just kind of a little bit of a train wreck. And, you know, the prophets of Baal are, are uh, and, and uh, all of the Baal worshipers are kind of overtaking the kingdom. And this is what God tells uh, Elijah to do. It's like, hey, call together and have a prayer off. So what Elijah does is he challenges the prophets of Baal to a prayer off. He says, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna make, a, we're gonna make an altar. And then what we're gonna do is you're gonna pray to your God, Baal and Asherah, and you pray to them and see if they show up. And then I'm gonna pray to my God and see what he does. And so they go over and they start praying. They make their altar and they start praying. And then Elijah starts like trash talking them. I love it. He goes over, he goes, hey, maybe your God's asleep. Get louder. And they start yelling. Then he says this, I, this is in God's holy word, right? This is in Inspired text of scripture. He says, hey, maybe your prophet's in the bathroom. No lie. I'm not making this up. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe you need to wait a little longer and nothing happens. And then Elijah says, now it's my God's turn. And he has this altar and he says, hey, this isn't enough. This isn't a big enough challenge for God. Like this is what I want you to do. Go get some water. They dig a trench, a moat around it. They fill it full of water. They dump water everywhere. And then Elijah prays and then fire falls from heaven and consumes it all. And what's God saying in that? They have no power. When you pray to something other than the God of the Bible, you're, it's no, of no power. There's no power in that. You're wasting your breath. You're wasting your time. God has all power. And now I know what some of you are thinking. Gosh, wouldn't that be great? You're talking about an apologetic, right? That's the apologetic right there. Why doesn't God work like that? Because here's why. Because God has already sent something from heaven far better than fire, his son, Jesus Christ. And how has he proven that his son is far better? By resurrecting him from the dead. That is how he's done it. That we have a better apologetic than fire from heaven. We have the son of God who's come from heaven, lived a life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, laid dead in a tomb and has been bodily resurrected, ascended on high where he's reigning and ruling and interceding for me and you. Ooh. Send his spirit that works, that quickens hearts. Fire from heaven doesn't quicken hearts. The spirit of God quickens dead hearts and brings them back to life and produces faith. So, in that list of things that we were talking about that's so important, object of the prayer is top notch in importance. Number two, Jesus is saying, I think even in here, the person offering the prayer is of paramount importance. The person offering the prayer is even more important than the prayer. And here's why I would say that. 
because your prayers don't inform God of anything. You've never prayed a prayer and God said, hmm, I didn't know that. I mean, sometimes we pray that way, don't we? Tomorrow I will pray like that. I'm gonna say, Lord, today Miss Rita's at UK Hospital and what she needs is she needs comfort and she needs strength. She needs to feel your spirit. And that's a good thing to pray. Don't hear me wrong. That's not a, that I'm saying that's a bad thing to pray. That's a good thing to pray. But in that, God's not in heaven going like, hey, that's a great idea, Andy. You know, I thought about sending her fear, but you know what? That request right there wins the day and instead I'm gonna give her comfort. Like that doesn't happen, right? Now praying prayers and saying things are good things, but we just gotta be careful because we live in an age like, I don't know, 20 years ago, there was the prayer of Jabez. Like some of you would date yourself. How many of you remember the prayer of Jabez? It's on t-shirts and coffee mugs and, you know, signs hanging up and the book that was written. And basically what it said is, hey, pray this prayer. And if you pray it for 30 days, at the end of 30 days, God will bless you that this is some kind of blessed prayer. And it's not, I mean, that's an incantation. If that's the case, that's not an incantation. Like what's most important, who we're praying to and who we are. Look at what through this promise comes. Those that abide in the vine, those that are abiding in me, his word is abiding you. You can, he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. The person offering the prayer really does matter. I know we like to think that God answers all prayers and who is praying that really doesn't matter, but it does. Here is the point. If you are not a true branch, if you are not a true disciple of Jesus, if you are simply playing religious games, if you are a hypocrite, if you are an unbeliever, then the sober warning is that you, you are on your own. That night when Judas walked out of the room, Judas is a picture of a man who is on his own. He's on his own now. He's on his own. And you, if you are an unbeliever, if you are not a true disciple, if this is just a joke, if, it's, if you're just attending church, just attending a church service and you're not part of the church, then this is the truth. God never promises to answer the prayers of a non-believer or of a false believer. God can, if he chooses to, God can answer those prayers honor that request. If he chooses to, under his own timing, under his own sovereignty, according to his own purposes, he can answer that prayer, but he is under no obligation to do that. James, the brother of Jesus, he will write that it is the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person. That kind of praying, that kind of person has power in its working. That righteous people throughout the Bible is synonymous with a Christian, the people of God. The person asking the request is important. The illustration that Jesus gives to this over and over is of a father and a son. You could be in Chick-fil-A, be 35 kids in that room and you hear your kid in there crying. You know it's your kid, don't you? you oh, that's SJ. Go check on her. What happened? You know, who's she sucking the nose? What's going on in there, Right? And the same thing is true for us. No one bends the father's ear, but his children. Really bends his ear to listen, but his children. In fact, look at the benefit again. Ask whatever you wish, Jesus says, and it will be done for you. Now that's one of the verses that the prosperity gospel charlatans love to pull out and love to say like, see, your wish is Jesus's command. 
Ask whatever you wish. What do you wish for? Maybe your wish isn't big enough. Does your wish match God's power? Does your wish match what God can do for you? Does your wish match what king's children deserve? And that's not what Jesus is saying at all in this text. They pull that out of this context, but look at the context. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, our union with Christ and Jesus's words, they're giving shape to our prayers. That is the framework. The word wish is actually the word desire. Here's the deal. If you have a rich, loving, obedient relationship to the vine, and if the true life of God courses through your life, your desires will be his desires. Your loves will be his loves. Your longings will be his longings. And you will always ask within that framework. Your prayers will be less about self-exaltation and more about God exaltation. Your paramount prayer will be God glorify yourself. Your paramount prayer will be God advance your name. God advance your cause. God advance your kingdom. God advance your gospel. That Jesus, by his power, he reprioritizes our desires and our fleshly and our worldly desires become less important. Number one is an answer to prayer. Number two is we have benefits of abiding in Jesus is assurance of God's love for you. Now we've circled around this for the last couple of weeks because Jesus has circled around this, but I, I think we should pick up what he's laying down, right? What he's laying down to his disciples again and again. He did it in John 14. Again, this is Jesus's last hours His last hours with his disciples, last words are important words. In John 14, he's reminded them time and time again of his great love for them. And now he does it again. Verse number nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Like just rest right there. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, one of the most brilliant theologians to ever live said, I would not believe that if it wasn't written in scripture. But the way that the father looks at the son, the special love that the father has for his eternal, holy, perfect son, Jesus says, that's the same love I have for my true disciples, those following me. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience is the context and setting for enjoying the fullness of God's love. Obedience is the setting and the context for you and I enjoying the benefit and the fullness of God's love. It does not mean that if we keep his love by obedience, as though God's love is like a yo-yo, you got it, now you don't. Here it is sorry. Oh, you've made me angry. Nope. He's talking about a rich and deep and continual abiding love for us. Here is what he's saying. We experience the fullness of God's love, not because of our obedience, but because our disobedience is no longer clouding it. We experience the fullness of God's love because our disobedience is not clouding the fullness of God's love. I think I could say it no better than what Richard Sibbs said it in The Bruised Reed, when he says this, willful breaches in our sanctification 
will greatly hinder our sense of justification. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but that's rich. We need to think of that. We need to chew on that. Volitional, willful sins, sins that we commit, sins of omission that we know with full knowledge. But we know with full knowledge, we should be doing this or we shouldn't be doing that. We know that. And yet we commit them anyway. They will greatly affect our sense of God's love and forgiveness in our lives. And they should, shouldn't they? Do you remember when you were in school? For some of you, that would be a short time ago. For others of you, like myself, a long time ago. And others of you, even a longer time ago. But do you remember in school and the teacher would assign homework and you're supposed to do? And some of you did it, so you don't know what I'm talking about. But a lot of you were like me and you didn't do it. And the next day rolled around and you're sitting in the classroom knowing full well you didn't do the homework. And then what she says, it's math class and you're terrible at math. Not that this has ever happened, but let's just say, right? Pretend like. But you're sitting there and then what she says, even worse than, hey, I'm gonna collect the papers. What she says is, we're gonna work those problems out on the board. And you haven't done it and you don't have a clue how to do it. If you were once a talkative student, like you're no longer talkative, that was me. You just get quiet. You don't want anybody to notice you. What you're thinking in your head is don't call on me. Don't call on me. Don't call on me. You're hunkered down, not saying a word. Nothing you want to do to draw attention to yourself. And here's what you're doing. You're living under this oppressive pressure, unable to maximize the experience because you're living in terror of being fined out, of being exposed, and of the discipline that is to follow. That's how many of you live your lives. Your life is absent of a felt knowledge of God's love because you know that you aren't living like you should. You're disobedient in some area of life or maybe in multiple areas of life. And you know it. You know it. Willful breaches, that's what he means by that. Willful breaches in your sanctification. That's what we're talking about. Hidden sin. That's what he's talking about here. They will greatly hinder your sense of justification, God's love and God's acceptance. But listen, here's the deal. Here's the deal. God knows your hearts. The good news of the gospel is that you are, I think there's a song on K-Love right now, you are fully known and fully loved. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that frees us. Knowing that, that we're, he already knows that. He, that, that. That sin that you're committing is not hidden from him. He knows it. And like I said a few weeks ago, his love for us is, it is something that is objective, not subjective. It's set up in the cross of Christ. Would you look to the cross of Christ and repent? That's the question. Is your heart tender enough that you could look upon the cross to Christ and you could repent? Thirdly, and this ties in, is joy in us. Verse number 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Notice here what he says is the Christian life is not a life of rigid legalism. It's not a life of restrictions and restraint and being deprived all the time. It's not something that is unhappy. It's not brow beating dead experience of you just gutting it out. But the Christian life is one of joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
the joy that cannot even be articulated or described. And let me, as we end, let me talk about, let me talk to two groups of people that may be here today. The first group of people that I wanna speak to that are divorced of this kind of joy is the people that have restless pleasure seeking. You're looking for meaning and pleasure and contentment and fulfillment in the things of this world. You're going to this world, you're hungry for only what God can give, only what satisfaction and meaning and contentment and ultimately what you're looking for is joy. You got, as, as Augustine said, your heart is restless and you continue going to other places, sinful places, worldly places, looking, looking for rest, looking for satisfaction, looking for contentment, looking for something to ease that and Jesus has it all the time. Notice joy is in the context again of obedience. It's in the context of obedience. And I think we really need to rethink obedience. What comes to mind whenever you think of obedience? Listen, there's nobody in this room that hates any more to be told what to do than I do. I'm rebellious like that. Tell me what to do (laughs) and you'll see a different side of me. I'll snap into the flesh like that. It just goes against everything. And listen, obedience isn't just telling you what to do. Obedience isn't just like, hey, these are my commands. Now go and do them because I'm, you know, God, here you go. That's not what obedience is. We really need to think through it. In fact, we even say things sometimes, I think that's damaging. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of months. We say this and I say it, like God's focus isn't to make you happy but to make you holy. Why do those two things have to be opposing things? Maybe God's holiness is the key and the path to happiness. Real lasting joy, as he says here, is found in God and in the things of God when we pursue him. In fact, the psalmist picks this up and he says this in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. Your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At God's right hand are pleasures. He's got them stacked up at his right hand. When you walk down the path of life with him, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. God's, all these pleasures he has stored up right here that he's just waiting to dole out to you. And some of you, 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 you go here, you look. It could, be, it could be in anything and everything. It could be in the needle that you shoot up in your arm, the junk that you snort up your nose. It could be in that and it could be in the third bowl of ice cream at night. That's how depraved our hearts are. What are we looking for? We're looking for joy, contentment, satisfaction, pleasure. It could be in good things. It could be in bad things. And listen, sometimes you get it. Sometimes you get it. I was thinking about this, that, Growing up, I had an uncle that had a farm and they had a couple of pigs on it. One time I was with my uncle and we actually went to Cedarmore Camp where the kids do crossings and we picked up a load of slop. Had this big tub in the back and we had all this slop, which was the slop was all their food scraps that they had dumped in the, into this tub and then loaded up in the bed of my um, uncle's little Chevy Love. And then we drove it out to his farm and we backed up to the pig, you know, where the pigs uh, ate. And we took buckets and we were bucketing this slop over in there. As we're bucking it, a banana floated to the top. And my uncle Ranzo, my great uncle, reached in there and got a hold of that banana, peeled it and ate it. 
<laughs> hate. Sometimes you find something good in slop, but there's a whole lot better places to find good things than slop. And maybe you found some good things, some meaningful things in your pursuit of the worldly pleasures and your pursuit of going after it through the world. Maybe you found a momentary satisfaction. Maybe you found this, oh, this feels good, right? Oh, this feels somehow right. This relationship that God isn't going to bless, ever bless because they're an unbeliever and you're trying to pursue Jesus and you're not, but I love them and this feels right. This feels good. It's like a banana that you fished out of the slop. And there's a whole lot better places to get bananas. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's just like, hey, come on over here. Quit fishing around in that. It's over here. The first person is a person who's restless and you're looking the second person is to the joyless Christian, which feels like an oxymoron, but I've been there. The joyless Christian, the Christian who would read that and say like, God's, Jesus's joy is in me and my joy is full. And that may be some of you in the room. You may just be genuine believers and genuine disciples of Jesus, but you just feel withered and dried up and Jesus's sap isn't in you. And I wanna give you four things as we close. I just want to, I just, I always want to be so practical and I want to help you. Number one, four ways that if you are a joyless Christian that you can get your joy back. Number one, confession and admission. And it starts here. Ask yourself the question, what would Jesus need to do in order to bring me joy? Jesus, if I had, or if you did this, then I could experience joy that this is an idol and he is lovingly withholding that from you because he loves you enough not to give you an idol and not himself. And when you realize that, you confess that, you admit that, you renounce that. Confession and admission, is there an area of unconfessed sin, an idol to repent of, unbelief in your heart, confess that, and repent of that. Number two, focus on God's love for you. Number two, focus on God's love for you. Your, his love for you incites your love for him. And let me give you just a very practical way that you can focus on God's love for you. Read this book, the Bible. No, I'm joking. Let me give you another book. It's called The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs. I quoted it earlier. It's a great book. It's a Puritan, so you have to read it slowly but it is fantastic, absolutely fantastic. If you currently feel dried and withered up and you think like, hold me fast, Jesus, read this book. Number three, prayer. But remember, ask what you wish and it will be given to you. Here's what I want you to do is spend focused time. And it may start off with being one minute in the morning then spend focused time with God, specifically asking for Jesus's joy and for him to make your joy complete. You're just gonna write that and you're just gonna pray that. Jesus, fill my joy, give me joy, joy. Number four, abide in his word. These are all from the text, right? See, these are all straight from the text. Number four, abide in his word. Increase your intake of God's word. What I mean by this is read the Bible more often. 
So if you're not reading it, read it. If you're reading it one day a week, read it three days a week. If you're reading it three days a week, read it five days a week. But read God's word. Increase your Bible intake. Read God's word. Pick up out a verse. And it's not the quantity of God's word that you're reading. Don't, increase, don't necessarily increase that. Maybe just reading the same chapter again and again and again. I even like that better. Read the Bible more often. Pick out a verse or a section to meditate on, to think about, to let it fill your mind. Memorize it. Listen to sermons on that passage. Increase your Bible intake. Abide in his word. Confession and admission. Focus on God's love for you. Prayer. Abide in his word. Those are the four things, but certainly this would be a great one as well. Remember what this means. Focus in on what this means and let that fill your joy. Let's pray. Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for your supper, as we prepare hearts to do business with you, Lord, and Father, I pray for great grace. I pray for your spirit to be with us. I pray that we would stay just another minute or two here, Lord. That you would use this time. You would use this symbolism of your blood being shed, your body being broken for us to forgive us of our sin, to call us into right relationship to you. That you would use that to incite our joy in you. Use this minute. Use the the sweetness of this juice in this little cup to incite our joy in you. In your name we pray. Amen.